false flags, false narratives. By all accounts, Ivan Kachinovsky is a world-leading expert on Ukraine. Based at the University of Ottawa, formerly of University of Toronto, Harvard, SUNY, and the Library of Congress, he has countless peer-reviewed articles and media appearances in all the right places. Associated Press, BBC, CBC, CNN, Guardian, Reuters, Washington Post, Kiev Post, Ukrainska Pravda, and many others. The guy is genuinely freaking impressive. He had published a number of articles on the Ukrainian far-right already. His latest piece was a peer-reviewed and accepted by the editor of a prestigious academic journal, with the editor's comments like these, and I quote, Evidence that the study produces in favor of its interpretation is solid. On this there is also consensus among the two reviewers. There is no doubt that this paper is exceptional in many ways. The dislike of geopolitical implications of Ivan's study by one of the reviewers is not its valid criticism and decision needs to be based on the scholarly merits of the article rather than politics. As one world-famous professor from US Ivy League University wrote, that Ivan's new article is superb, thoroughly documented, very important, rigorous and substantial on a topic of great significance and should be published for reasons of its excellence, rigor and prior acceptance by the journal with minor revisions. The journals will only benefit from publishing such a work of importance and excellence which will further the scholarly understanding and debate regarding a very important moment of modern history. Yet the accepted for publication article was pulled by the board of the journal. Why? Because a political decision. So what was so politically dangerous in the article? The author showed, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the 2014 Maidan massacre, where 100 protesters were killed, had been perpetrated by the Ukrainian far-right and related Maidan forces as a false flag operation in order to frame Yanukovych in the eyes of the Western governments, such that the latter would turn on the former. Furthermore, the Western government's condition for turning on Yanukovych communicated prior to the massacre was this. The tally of victims must reach 100. And now I quote a tweet where Ivan Kachinovsky wrote the evidence. Tachnimbok, far-right Svoboda party leader on his and other Maidan leaders talks with Western government representatives before Maidan massacre. The quote from Tachnimbok. I asked, we have four victims, why is there no reaction? Question mark. This is not enough, was the response. We will be able to react when there are 100 victims. And now, business games. Welcome to... A newsletter edition of Business Games, where we teach critical and strategic thinking. This is a fifth entry in our geopolitical and propagandistic season, where we start off with the Ukraine situation and zoom out to the geopolitical situation in the world, along with the role of media in it. 
I highly encourage you to forward, share on social and in real life, take snippets, discuss, and of course support us with a paid subscription of your choosing, either the normal or recession-proof price, which is much cheaper. Both give you the same benefits, and you pay what you want slash what you can. It's your choice. So all the quotes above are from Ivan Kachinovsky's Twitter thread with all the evidence presented, plus the article. So you can read it later. False narratives, war crimes. You probably have by now figured out why the above article, the news of which we've learned on 6th of January 2023, about a false flag massacre from 2014 is of central importance to the question of Bucha. In July 2022, I wrote my piece called Mariupol and Bucha Narrative v. Reality, where I critically analyzed the information about the shooting at the Mariupol humanitarian corridors and the crimes in Bucha presented in the Western and Ukrainian mainstream media and also public channels of the Ukrainian far right. By then, I'd spent several months analyzing the media with my conclusion being, on balance of evidence and rational incentives, it is more likely that the Kiev forces perpetrated both crimes, for which the Russian and Donbas troops had been blamed. And while I was convinced beyond any reasonable doubt in case of the Mariupol situation, I was closer to 80-20 on Bucha. Likely, but still had doubts. Three things happened in autumn 2022 and January 2023 that pushed my conviction to be beyond any reasonable doubt on Bucha. And those three things were. Number one, in September, after the Kiev forces had taken Izum and Kupiansk in the Kharkov region, there popped up videos of civilians being mass killed by the troops. And while the veracity of these videos, in particular the identity of the troops, were debated, there also popped up several Ukrainian ultra-nationalistic public telegram channels that were doxing civilians who were accused of quote-unquote collaboration. Such civilians included an old lady born in 1947, a young mother with a toddler, and many other such people. Seemingly common people. From the Ukrainian far-right public channels, it was clear that quote-unquote collaborationism included taking humanitarian help from the Russian troops during the six months that they were in Izum, or teaching children in a school. Kiev officials were bragging that many of the ones who were accused of collaborationism simply did not make it to the interrogation, somehow got lost on the way. The second thing that happened was, in November, Scott Ritter, who is a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and a former U.N. Special Commission weapons inspector, and Brian Berletic, or Berletic, a.k.a. Tony Cartellucci of the New Atlas, independently from each other, critically broke down a six-month-long joint Associated Press-PBS quote-unquote investigation titled Putin's attack on Ukraine documenting war crimes and found absolutely zero evidence of Russian war crimes presented therein. Now they each confirmed some of the conjectures that I had presented in my draft in July 2022 and while I had some suspicions purely from logic they presented the evidence from the AP slash PBS frontline piece that confirmed Ukrainian civilians being used as spies and combatants by the Kiev side, which made them no civilians any longer. 
Brian also critically broke down the Flechette's argument that I also independently made in my piece, namely that the Western media said that the Russians were shooting at their own positions with unguided cluster nail-like munitions, which never made any sense to me. And of course we knew that the Russians were shooting because the Ukrainian spokesperson said it wasn't us. Now Brian presents more evidence as to why it is in fact the Ukrainian side because they also had a track record of doing exactly this in Donbas previously that was documented by the Western media. So when the Ukrainian side says it wasn't us because we don't do it, that's a lie. Now the third point was that in early January 2023 I came across the Ivan Kachinovsky story that proved false flag massacre by the Ukrainian ultranationalists in the past which I already mentioned. These three together pushed to, beyond any reasonable doubt, my cumulative confidence that Butcher was indeed perpetrated by the Kiev-associated forces, be it as a retribution or staging or a false flag operation to blame the Russians, or all of the above. It also confirmed the sheer strength of the one-sided narrative that had been activated in the Western mainstream media. Guilty until proven innocent. Whether it's the Maidan massacre, Odessa massacre, Lugansk bombing, MH17 downing, Russians allegedly using rape as a weapon of war, butcher killings, Mariupol events, humanitarian corridor shooting, shootings, plural, hospital bombing, theater bombing, Zaporozhye nuclear power plant shelling, Nord Stream 1 and 2 bombing, and the environmental terrorism, basically, a rocket-killing farmers in Poland. All of these have the same things in common. There are six things in common for all of these. And these six things are, number one, they are all terrible events that the russian slash Donbas side had absolutely zero motive to execute. Number two, they all immediately benefited somebody else, primarily the Maidan insurgents come Kiev coup regime, but also sometimes the US, especially the Nord Stream bombings. Number three, they all immediately hurt Russia in the form of reputation loss, sanctions, military support for Kiev, economic loss, and in a myriad other ways. Number four, they were all immediately blamed on the Russian or quote-unquote pro-Russian side by the Western officials and the Western mainstream media before any evidence was presented, including the fast walking back by the West in the Polish case, which initially was blamed on Russia, although Zelensky kept on insisting on the Russian capability. Number five. In every case from 2022 and most from 2014, except for the Lugansk bombing, the Western mainstream media and power structures shut down, excluded or simply censored any challenge to, or even questioning of, the official narrative. Again, apart from the fast walking back of the Polish case. Now, Lugansk bombing was in fact investigated by the Western media, I believe CNN, and Radio Free Europe, who proved that it was the Kiev regime that bombed Lugansk when Kiev was blaming somebody else and denying the culpability. Now, and finally, number six, after the 2014 Maidan massacre, 
there is a proven track record for a side other than Russia in perpetrating similar or identical crimes in the past or mistakes leading to the disasters, such as ostensibly the Polish situation. Now, for some of them, for example, Maidan massacre and Lugansk bombing, we now know beyond any reasonable doubt from the Western sources alone that Maidan come Kyiv regime was behind these. For the mass rape allegations, we know from the Ukrainian mainstream media and from the fired former ombudsman for the human rights Denisova herself that this was a pure fabrication. Do you still have any reasonable doubt that the others can and in time will be in turn proven beyond any reasonable doubt to be somebody else's doing? Mostly Kiev, sometimes US, sometimes pure fabrication? I do not doubt that at all, that all the others are also of the same ilk and can and will be proven to be not of Russia's doing. And in fact, to be of somebody else's doing. From any objective looking at the facts, there is no case against Russia in any of those. There is absolutely no motive. In each case, a player other than Russia, mostly Kyiv regime and sometimes the US, had all three of means, opportunity and a motive. We also now know that the same player other than Russia has a track record of doing all of the above in the past. For example, Maidan come Kyiv regime in all cases of massacres of civilians presented as basically false flag operations. US, in the case of Nord Stream, has a prior CIA involvement in the Siberian pipeline malfunction in 1982. Ukrainian military also has a track record of shooting down a civilian airplane and then vehemently denying it prior to the MH17 disaster. In 2001, they shot down a Russian airplane coming from Israel to Moscow, which Ukraine denied for days before accepting the responsibility. It was apparently an accident. Now, Kiev has a tendency to always deny any wrongdoing, even for accidents, such as the 2001 civilian airplane and the Polish farmer's death in 2022 by a Kiev air defense rocket, which was likely rogue. So not only does a player other than Russia in all of these cases have all three of the means, opportunity and motive, they also have a track record of doing exactly that. And yet, there is an immediate and vicious knee-jerk tendency to always blame Russia. Guilty until proven innocent is apparently the new norm. To paraphrase Dr. Sean Guillory's insightful writing from 2019, I'm increasingly inclined to see this as racism. Dr. Sean Guillory is a Russia expert at the University of Pittsburgh, and he wrote an article in 2019 called The Paradox of American Russophobia, and I will read to you a little bit from the article. Quote, Given that Russophobia suggests an irrational fear of Russia's otherness, how much of this is really about Russia? Discourses of otherness are always expressions of identity and power. The tendency to paint Russia as eternally backward, barbarous, despotic and even evil is fundamentally to the West's construction of itself. 
Just note how the imagined borders of Europe or the West have shifted over the past century based on membership in and aspirations to join NATO-EU vis-à-vis Russia. Russia, in the words of one historian, serves as a dark double through which the West tempers its own darkness while simultaneously blackening the Russian other. Russophobia serves as one of the many discursive mechanisms in which the West consolidates itself, sublimates internal differences and reaffirms its universality. One of the most controversial aspects of Russophobia is whether it's a form of racism. Russians are not a race. However, Russophobia utilizes racist language and concepts. I'm increasingly inclined to see it as racism. End quote. I agree. Now, as an aside, the damage from this form of racism is not only to Russia. The real damage might be to the West itself. And I will read to you a snippet from an article written by the late Joseph F. Cohen for The Nation, also in 2019. Now, the article was called The Real Costs of Russiagate. And there are two snippets I want to read from there. Snippet number one. But what about the legions of high-ranking intelligence officials, politicians, editorial writers, television producers, and other opinion makers, and their eager media outlets that perpetuated, inflated, and prolonged the unprecedented political scandal in American history? Those who did not stop short of accusing the President of the United States of being a Kremlin quote-unquote agent, asset, puppet, Manchurian candidate, and who characterized his conduct and policies as quote-unquote treasonous. These and other examples are cited in my book War with Russia? From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate and in a recent piece by Paul Sterobin in City Journal. Will they now apologize as decency requires or, more importantly, explain their motives so that we might understand and avoid another such national trauma? And another snippet. This is an exceedingly grave danger because the real costs of Russiagate are not the estimated 25-40 million spent on the Mueller investigation, but the corrosive damage it has already done to the institutions of American democracy. Damage done not by an alleged Trump-Putin axis, but by Russiagate's perpetrators themselves. Having explained this collateral damage in my recently published book War with Russia? From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate, I will only note them here. Now, I'll provide the link to this article in the text version of this newsletter, and I recommend that you read both this as well as the piece by Paul Sterobin. And as the impact of hatred and racism on the West is not the focus of this piece here, I shall leave you to follow the links, and I might come back to this topic later. Critically thinking. Now that we've established a pattern of false flags and false narratives, we can start to check our own biases and objectively look at the available evidence on Mariupol and Butcher, as we know from the Western mainstream media. As I said many times elsewhere, I'm purposefully handicapping myself to look only at the evidence from the quote-unquote reliable sources. They are Western mainstream media, Ukrainian mainstream media, and Ukrainian far-right public channels. The logic is simple. If I can disprove the mainstream Western narrative using their own sources only, then it must be false. Now, the primary educational purpose of this handicap is also clear. We're trying to learn to make sense of the information that we have access to. We're not trying to get to better sources in other languages, 
because most of you do not have that option. What if you have access to only one type of media? From this light, the Western mainstream media is just a useful example, as it's the one with the widest access for an English-language podcast. Also, nobody in their right mind can accuse me of using Russian propaganda. How can I? By using the Western mainstream sources? Now, none of this can stop highly emotional people who want to believe a deeply one-sided narrative or people whose reputation and income depends on promoting said one-sided narrative. But they are not the target audience, and you are not like that. Now, actually, disproving isn't even necessary. Acting as if I were a defense lawyer in a criminal case, all I need to show is reasonable doubt in the prosecution's case. Now, as it happens, there is a lot of mainstream Western and Ukrainian evidence that disproves their own case. One just needs to apply our dirty dozen critical thinking principles and patiently sift through the available evidence. On Mariupol and Butcher, I do all of that in a fairly long and comprehensive article I highly recommend reading on www.business-games.ai. The article is called Mariupol and Butcher, Narrative versus Reality. Here, I'll just copy and paste the summaries verbatim from the blog entry. Do read the blog entry for the details. And of course, the dirty dozen thinking principles I covered in the previous podcast episode. And there's also a text version of it on the site. Who shot at the Mariupol humanitarian corridors? So, what have we shown? We've taken almost all of our dirty dozen thinking principles and applied them to the question of who shot at the humanitarian corridors in Mariupol. We've shown. History. Starting point is 2014, not 2022. Context. Minority supported Maidan. Very few supported violence. Southeast did not accept the US-instigated coup in Kiev in 2014. As a result, there had been popular anti-Maidan movement and referendum on autonomy in Donbass. As a result of that, the post-coup Kiev regime came to Donbass to bring them violently to heel. Donbass defenders. Now, New York Times and others showed Donbass defenders were as civilians who took up arms against the Kiev aggression. They've been writing about it in 2014. Kiev ran a campaign to dehumanize Donbass as terrorists, separatists, and useless. And we've shown all of that. There is evidence in the article. Framing. Reframing the understanding of the conflict to that of the Ukrainian civil war, we've seen that all of the evidence makes much more sense. So some of the evidence makes much more sense and all of the evidence makes sense in this frame. In return, the alternative frame, Ukrainian civil war, also makes more sense given the evidence. So not only does the frame make what we see make more sense, but also what we see reinforces the alternative to the mainstream frame. Now, under what conditions could this be true? That's our, so the alternative explanations thinking principle. Now, we've seen that Russian troops shooting at civilians after having organized humanitarian corridors while trying to take Mariupol. Narrative only makes sense if Russians are suicidal or insane. 
We've also seen logically and later supported by eyewitness evidence, as well as Zelensky's and other Kiev officials' statements in the media, that the Kiev troops and far-right paramilitaries have more incentive to use civilians as human shield. There's by now overwhelming evidence from Amnesty International, UN, eyewitnesses, direct quotes of me to media, logic, etc., etc., that Kiev regime does, in fact, do exactly that, use the civilians as human shield. Now, being a detective principle means opportunity motive. Both sides had the first two means and opportunity, yet only Kiev forces had the motive to shoot at the civilian corridors. Using multiple types of evidence, logical, eyewitness, amnesty, UN, quotes by Zelensky and other Kiev officials, historical, modern, incentives, are all aligned with the actions. Now note, I haven't even touched on the US involvement and the geopolitics. I only explained the background of the Ukrainian civil war in Donbass and Russia's involvement in it. Geopolitical and international economy views I'll cover later. They have little to do with Mariupol itself, but much to do with the genesis of the Russia's involvement in the conflict. For now, most is explained with the frame of the Ukrainian civil war. So everything that happened in Mariupol is explained with the frame of the Ukrainian civil war. Now I leave it up to you if you think the case I presented for who really shot at the humanitarian corridors in Mariupol is convincing. Obviously, you can only do that if you've read the full article, which I highly encourage, as this is only a summary. What really happened in Bucha? So, what have we shown? We've again taken almost all of our dirty dozen thinking principles and applied them to a question of what really happened in Bucha. We've shown. Context. A split civilian population with respect to the pro-Kiev versus pro-Russian loyalties. Being a detective, both sides had means and opportunity, and both sides could have had the motive to punish the non-loyal civilians. Being a detective too, more on being a detective. The pattern of behavior. We saw that the Ukrainian far-right has a proven track record of staged false flag massacres going back to their Maidan days in 2014. This is really important. The Russian side does not have this track record. The recent history and the new laws, the new laws that the Kiev regime introduced, made it easier for the pro-Kiev civilians to participate in the military conflict. Either spies or what is known as franc-tireurs, illegal combatants, that Scott Ritter was writing about. Also, recent history and new laws made it illegal to deny Russian aggression, thereby biasing any evidence given or else a person can end up in a criminal court. What does this mean? It means that, well, there's more about this in the article, but basically, if you say anything other than Russia's, Russians were terrible, you can end up in a criminal court. Using all the evidence we have about murder lists and doxing in a Zoom, extrajudicial disappearances of people suspected in collaboration in Kupensk, unlawful killings by the SBU, which is the Ukrainian secret service, cracking down on traitors, articles that were published in the West, and so on and so forth, it paints a picture where mass murders of collaborators, quote-unquote, in Bucha, would be par for the course for the Kiev regime and pro-Kiev militias. 
in fact, there is overwhelmingly more credible evidence from the Ukrainian side that this is in fact happening than there is any evidence presented that this is happening on the Russian side and is done by the Russians. Now, what would need to be true principle and alternative hypotheses? We've also seen that in Kherson and Melitopol and in other places, Russian soldiers behave completely differently. So why Bucha? What's similar between Bucha and Izum and Kupinsk, but different in Melitopol and Kherson, is that in the first three, Bucha, Izum and Kupinsk, Kiev forces captured them back. Melitopol was relatively peacefully transitioned, and Kherson was originally peacefully transitioned as well, and lately... The Ru Russia evacuated the vast majority of the pro-Russian civilians, which is in fact the, the vast majority of the civilians, from Kherson's right bank of the Dnieper to the left. So basically there were no people who could, be, could have been accused of being collaborationists. In fact, uh, this reminds me, I don't remember where, but apparently there was a quote by, I read somewhere, might look it up, where an SBU official said that in Kherson there were hundreds of accusations of collaborationism and in fact out of these hundreds they could only prove one or two and basically what it meant was, or what he said it meant, was that people, local civilians, were ratting out their neighbors to settle personal scores rather than anything else. So if you tell on your neighbor and they get disappeared, you potentially can take their property. So that stuff is also happening, and we know that it's happening from the Kiev official media or official people. Take it or leave it. I need to look up that evidence. I remember seeing it. No, even without it. So what's the other thing that need to be true? What other alternative hypotheses that we mentioned or using that principle, what other thing did we mention? There is more evidence for systemic viciousness of the pro-Kiev forces as opposed to the Russian troops. Now, what else have we done? We looked at debunking the Western mainstream media, quote-unquote, fact-checkers with simple logic. Like, for example, applying the simple self-preservation logic, it's clear that Russian troops wouldn't be shooting at their own positions with unguided nail-like flechettes, which is what was presented in the West by the likes of the Washington Post and the Guardian, that in Bucha many people, many civilians were killed with these nail-like cluster munitions, which are in fact prohibited. And they said it's the Russians, even though they also said that these munitions were shot at the positions where the Russians were. But the Ukrainian official said, no, we didn't do it, which was enough for the Washington Post to believe that these munitions had to have been shot by the Russian soldiers at their own location. It doesn't make any sense. Now, using all we know about the dangerous nationalists from the New York Times, it is also highly likely that Bucha was used to destabilize a potential peace agreement reached in Istanbul. So New York Times had written an article like that in the early February saying that something like this could happen. So they wrote it could happen. Exactly that happened later. Now, even after six months, the Western quote-unquote investigative journalists, and I'm being sarcastic here, failed to provide any evidence of the war crimes being committed by the Russian soldiers. We've also seen that in the article. Now, combining legal setting using Kiev laws and criminal cases with the actors' incentives, 
with what's being said officially and which statements we can believe and which we cannot, the cumulative evidence points away from Russia and rather at the high likelihood of the Kiev regime being behind the Butcher war crimes or staging. And I will, I actually, after the proven Maidan massacre being perpetrated by the Ukrainian Maidan forces, shooting at the protesters as a false flag operation, I'm upgrading my high likelihood to, I'm convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that in fact the Kiev regime was behind it or the forces associated with the Kiev regime. I just don't know whether that had been a massacre or a staging that is bringing bodies from other places to Bucha or something of that kind or a retribution. But I have no doubt that it is Kiev's doing. I no longer have any doubt, as I described later. Now, again, I leave it up to you to review all and think for yourself if you find my case convincing. You might not, which is fine. Obviously, you can only do that if you've read the full article, which I highly encourage, as this is only a summary. Now, conclusion. I have a couple of thoughts in conclusion. The general problem with the Russia bad knee-jerk reaction is not even that it's russophobic and therefore racist. No, the general problem is that it presupposes the culprit for literally anything and therefore exonerates the other side from any transgression from high energy price inflation to crimes against humanity. High inflation? Putin's inflation. Many Syrian refugees? Putin is shipping them from via Belarus into the EU. Now, I saw this for real on German TV literally two days ago where they were saying that Putin is behind the refugee crisis in or had been behind even before the Ukrainian situation. As if Putin started the Syria disaster. Don't like the results of the US election? Putin stole it. Now, this, 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 this Russia bad framing is chosen by default and all the evidence, all the quote-unquote evidence, is presented through this frame, leaving the real culprit to do whatever they want. If you switch on your brain, you know that Putin bad is pure crack bullshit. Just because, simply put, no single person can have that much power as to shift so much everywhere all at once. Now, luckily, all these narratives are also provably false with an overwhelming amount of evidence that goes way beyond this makes no sense. Now, I present a lot of this evidence for your perusal, and there are other people doing this, luckily. Now, for all my criticism of the official US, there are many American dissenting voices still able to publish and speak out. Now, much less so than before, but much more so than in the EU and the UK, not to mention New Zealand, which is personally deeply disappointing. But credit where credit's due. US is still the bastion of free speech, comparatively speaking, on balance. Though clearly, it's not as absolute as many Americans would like to believe. And I think it's getting worse. Now, some other thoughts of what we showed or mentioned. And I want to highlight three. There are provable false flag operations, including massacres that the Kiev regime perpetrates. By now, it's a fact. It's not Russian propaganda. It's an academic study proven beyond any reasonable doubt. A Western academic study. Number two. There is a massive Western propaganda machine involving governments, secret agencies, media, and now academia. And it works really, really well in the sense that it gives results in manufacturing consent. 
And what we mentioned, which I want to highlight yet again, because it's really important, even though it's not a central topic here, is that Russophobia is a form of racism that is dangerous not only to Russia, but also to the West itself. You cannot build a culture based on hate. Look how it's working out for Ukraine. This is a major topic for another time. Now that about does it for now. Please, like the episode, share it with others, comment, recommend. Support us by choosing a paid subscription to get access to bonus material from the previous seasons. I provide almost all of this season's material for a free email subscription to my newsletter. Or by just following the free podcast. However, we also have two paid options with the the same benefit. They all have way more benefits than the free, but both or each one of them has the same benefit as the other. Now we have a standard option and a recession-proof student option. So one is standard price, the other is much cheaper. You choose your own price. Now all information and all material is on www.business-games.ai. Cheers.